from Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast. 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the world, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of thebradblog.com. But today you are gifted with me. Coming to you from San Francisco, Angie Coiro. I got a treat for you later this hour. I sat down with Jeff Nunberg. He's the UC Berkeley linguist that you hear on Fresh Air. We talked all about the language of election 2016. And there's so much to deconstruct there. You know, all of a sudden, these forbidden phrases like white trash are part of the dialogue. We got Trump's dismissive but always plausibly deniable sexism. You know, Megyn Kelly bleeding out of her ears or wherever. And racism and anti-Muslim intolerance. And how all of this focus on what comes out of Trump's mouth is letting Clinton kind of coast along. How using more vanilla language helps her, but also hurts her. And as they used to say back when there were dials, don't touch that dial. It's all coming up in a few minutes. But I'll tell you now, I was really, really yearning for something today that, frankly, I don't think I have a chance in hell of ever seeing. When the FBI report came out on Hillary Clinton's emails, man, within minutes, I wished for a world where we would all sit down and shut up while we digest important news. God forbid, get the facts and compare them against what we already know and come to conclusions that put the country first. This is not the first time, in fact, it's just the latest, where the divides in the country, divides plural, on the left, on the right, and in the center are doing all of us a grave injustice. The FBI report was followed so fast and so predictably, within moments, with cherry-picking to bolster this argument or that attack or this narrative or some other condemnation, the report is 58 pages long. The commentary was coming out before anybody could possibly have read it. And you can fault traditional media as much as you want, but the New York Times and others put out exactly the kind of story this merited. A few paragraphs saying, hey, the report came out, and here's why that's important. And behind that, you can imagine reporters combing through the just-released report, picking out the facts and the dates, and collating those with the pre-existing documents and getting ready to report the findings in context as part of an existing, evolving, complex Story. Now, you can poke at me all day long about the failings of mainstream media, and I know you will. But that's how this is supposed to be done. It's not how it was done in almost every other venue, particularly, of course, online. You could watch 
in action, while the various factions skimmed as fast as possible to pick out the tidbits that fit their pre-existing narrative. Clinton can't account for what happened to old blackberries as they were replaced, and that means she's lying. She explained to the FBI why she didn't see some documents as classified. Well, that makes sense, so everyone who thinks otherwise is out to get her. Now, is that really the only route we can go down? She is a chronic liar entirely, or everything she does can be innocently explained? I'm not going to whine on and on about it, but I am sick of critically important issues, for example, the security and safety of the USA being picked apart to bash or to bolster, depending on the mindset and the motives of the person pushing that narrative. Okay, Clinton, it appears, did some things that, at the very least, were really dumb. And, in some cases, may have put the country's well-being at risk. Imagine if we all focused on finding the full facts there and putting them in context instead of peeking out the little pieces that we can quickly hone as weapons to throw at each other. I'm going to take my own advice on this. I'm not going to go into details about what the emails and the FBI report do and don't tell us. I may get to that on the next broadcast because I'll be back. But for the time being, speaking of pushing through the yelling to get to the nuance, Brock Turner has walked out of jail. The frat boy who was convicted of sexual assault, which in most cases, most of us outside the legal system would call rape. He served three months of a six-month sentence, and he's out. There's been a rally going on in San Jose to recall the judge in the case, Judge Aaron Persky. Now, I signed one of the petitions to get him out. That was before I talked with Imani Gandhi. You know her online as Angry Black Lady and Sajid Khan, deputy public defender in Santa Clara County. And like every other issue you really look at, it is more complicated than quick media hits will leave you with. In fact, just like me, Imani questioned her own point of view after spending a few minutes talking to Sajid. So listen to this. He starts out defending Turner's sentence. It was more than six months that he was sentenced to. Uh, there were other layers of the sentence that weren't meeting, weren't being covered in the headlines. Uh, the fact that he was a convicted felon, uh, which is a brand that he can't shake for the rest of his life. The fact that he has to register as a sex offender, uh, which is a publicly known database that will essentially inhibit him from many job opportunities. And the fact that he's on felony probation for three years. Uh, which means that he has to obey all laws, he has to comply with treatment, he has to report to his probation officer, and if he violates that probation, he can still go to prison for up to 14 years in the case. And so when we look at some of the nuances of the sentence, we see that it's more than what meets the eye. And I also wanted to call some attention to this concern about recalling a judge or reprimanding a judge for exercising discretion and for exercising compassion. Let's get Imani on the record as to where you stand with all of this. Um, I actually just signed the petition to recall him this morning, and then literally I talked to him for two minutes, and I thought, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, my main concern is always going to be about how the justice system affects people of color and also how the justice system does not do right by victims. I think that the sentence was unfair. I didn't know about the felony probation. I didn't know about these extra layers. But it seems to me that despite these extra layers and despite the fact that he's going to be a registered sex offender and despite the fact that he has to, um, I think what, there was another thing that you'd said. 
which probation. I, probation. My concern is that those layers would also be applied to a defendant of color. And so that seems to me that it was just an, a case of abject privilege, a case of a judge listening to the sort of keening of a really nice white guy's family. People of color don't get that same treatment. Um, but at the same time, I do... I do understand that the concern is going to be that judges are going to treat all defendants more harshly, and due to the racial biases inherent in the system, that that harshness is going to affect people of color more than it will affect anybody else. So that's sort of where I stand. And I obviously have no question about the conviction itself, I think. Mm -hmm. Put him under the jail is what I think. (laughs) But I cannot imagine that a black guy in the same circumstances, would have gotten that light of a sentence. And that is just something that is always going to trouble me. And to be honest, I don't want that to mean that we're going to increase the sentencing for all crimes, because that's obviously going to hurt people of color the worst. But I'm really not that opposed to increasing the sentencing for all crimes involving sexual assault, because those are crimes that are so rarely prosecuted. They're so rarely even investigated. And so what, what message are we sending to young women and to, to women and to girls when this woman put herself out there? You know, she read this statement. She, she prosecuted. She did things that most women don't even bother to do because they know they're going to be treated so horribly by the system. And so she went, she put herself out there, and then this guy gets six months. So why did she even bother? What did she even get from that? And I think that, that that's where my concern about the way this case has played out sort of lies. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to In Deep. I'm Angie Kerr. We're talking about Stanford student Brock Turner's verdict in his sexual assault case. Well, one of the things that's really struck me about this is a lot of anger about how the judge looked at mandatory minimums, looked at the prosecutor's recommendation, and even acknowledged that he felt differently than the jury did. The jury did not find him contrite. The judge believed he was contrite, and he considered that in the sentencing. And a lot of the anger that I'm seeing about this and that I've been hearing is that the judge essentially listened to the jury and said, eh, I don't buy that, and kind of went down his own road. How often does that happen where a judge says, yeah, I've listened to the jury and I just don't buy it? Well, he didn't throw out the conviction. Uh, he, Mr. Turner was convicted by this jury of three felonies. And so the judge then has a set of statutory factors that he looks at in ter- determining the appropriate sentence. And you mentioned earlier that there's a essentially a presumption of prison in these cases, absent some sort of unusual or mitigating circumstances. And so you know, the judge, he accepts the jury's verdict, but then he has to decide based on the offense, based on the offender, the victim, he has to decide what the appropriate sentence is um, in terms of serving a variety of interests. And we have to peel the layers back and realize that this is an adversarial criminal justice system. You know, so Brock Turner is arrested and is prosecuted for these crimes. He's accused of multiple felonies. He's a Stanford student with no criminal history. If I was his lawyer and his case was in my hands, We don't have our clients out there admitting to crimes or expressing remorse. That's not how our process works. Our process works where there are offers made to our clients, there's plea bargaining that's engaged in, and there's an effort to resolve a case. If the efforts uh, fail, then we go to trial, where we're trying as defense attorneys to try to prove or to disprove the prosecution's case. Um, So there's not really room in those processes for expressions of remorse. That's not how it works on the ground level, especially when you have a young person who's accused of these crimes. 
I'd imagine that most of us would want to fight those charges as opposed to being saddled with felony convictions, being kicked out of school, registering as a sex offender. You're going to roll the dice with the trial and see what what kind of comes out on the other side. But it seems to me in a case like this one, you know, where you have these two Swedish grad students who came upon this man assaulting this woman, it doesn't seem like a case where you couldn't offer some sort of recognition that even if you don't think that, even if he didn't think that he raped her, even if he thought that, you know, I was too drunk to know what was going on, this idea that there was absolutely no remorse whatsoever, no... And, and I understand that does make sense that you don't want a client to speak. You want to, you know, do your best to get your client off in all respects. But it's such a sensitive area and rape is such a sensitive thing. It seems to me just callous to continue to blame everything else but your own wrongdoings. I mean, to, and to not even say maybe I was mistaken in getting that drunk or I, I or I did wrong in whatever, whatever it was. It just seems particularly callous in this respect. Um, and, you know, it doesn't help that his parents seem to be just terrible people. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, the 20 minutes of action. And I know that he came out later and said he didn't mean sexual activity. He meant, you know, 20 minutes of time. Of expense, his son's action. Of his son's, yeah, of, his, of, of time that was expended. Um, but, you know, then there was the mother who was saying that she was grief stricken, so grief stricken she couldn't redecorate her home. I mean, it just, these seem like fundamentally clueless people who don't understand the effect that their son's actions have had on this woman. And that really, really bothers me. Yeah. Well, let, let me uh, get a question from the audience here because it's directly on point. And, and this is for Imani. Should we put so much emphasis on victim impact if she's an old homeless lady in the park who isn't articulate? We might not be so outraged. Yeah, and I think that's a problem, too. I mean, that's that's part and parcel of this country's failure to deal with rape and sexual assault in a way that centers the victims, that centers women. Um, you know, it's... One other thing that always bothers me is my, my stance is I, I choose to believe women. And yes, there have been situations where, you know, it turns out that a woman was not telling the truth. But my stance in choosing to believe women is going to be right something like 99.5% of the time. And I'm okay with that. Um, rape is the only crime where we automatically or where most people automatically assume that the woman is lying. If you came to me and said, I was mugged yesterday, I wouldn't ask you to prove it. I would just believe that you were mugged yesterday. And so, and I understand that, you know, rape has a certain, you know, rape is a, is a particularly heinous crime. And so being accused of a particularly heinous crime may have more of an effect on you than being accused of, of mugging. But there's something about rape and rape culture that, I would prefer to err on the side of believing women. Um, and whether that person is articulate, you know, a, a beautiful white Stanford student or a homeless drug addict, I, it seems to me that there shouldn't be a difference. And there is. There is a difference in the way we treat victims based on their circumstance. There's a difference in the way that we treat perpetrators based on their circumstance. And I'd like to close that gap. Well, in fact, Sajid, I'd like to go into this since you have experience in the courtroom with just this kind of thing. One of the things that outraged people when they saw how the victim was treated on the stand was the, the sheer scope of what she was asked about and what appeared to be irrelevance. When did you urinate? Are you sure you urinated then? You know, what, some just ridiculous stuff. Put that in some kind of context for us. I think people were well, upset for her. Yeah, I mean, the context is the Constitution. Um, the context is the right to confront your accuser, the right to confront and cross-examine witnesses. I mean, we're in an adversarial system, as I mentioned earlier, and when people are accused of a crime, the United States Constitution puts into place certain uh, 
protections for the accused, uh, the right to a jury trial, the right to confront and cross-examine witnesses, the right to remain silent. And so unfortunately or fortunately, um, when this woman, Emily Doe, or anyone who reports a rape or is, uh, you know, accusing someone of a sexual assault, you know, it comes with certain baggage, you know, the way our uh, system is set up. And it comes with that possibility that she might end up on a witness stand having to be cross-examined by a defense attorney. That's the, Those are the rights that we've afforded the accused in this country, and I think rightfully so. Um, in terms of the specific questions that you referenced, I mean, that's, that's uh, for, uh, in this case, Judge Persky to decide what's relevant, what's not, what's, a, what's an appropriate question, and what's not um, based on the law that governs evidence. So I wasn't there. Um, mm-hmm. But as a prosecutor in those scenarios, if the prosecutor feels that the defense attorney's questions are inappropriate or irrelevant, then they have the responsibility to object and to prohibit those types of questions from, from, being, from being asked. I wanted to also mention about, um, you know, Brock Turner's parents and empathy um, for the victim. A couple things. One is that when we look at the probation report in this case, we see that when Miss Emily Doe was initially interviewed by the probation officer, she told the probation officer that she didn't want Brock Turner to rot in jail, that she wanted him to get treatment, to recognize the consequences of what he had done. And so, I, I, you know, that's, that's one thing. She actually had that foresight initially and that kind of wisdom to seek out uh, that type of response to this crime as opposed to retribution. And then her tone and tenor changed thereafter, and I don't know exactly why. That's Imani Gandhi of This Week in Blackness Prime and Sajid Khan of the Santa Clara County Public Defender's Office. I'm Angie Coro. We'll have more of this conversation about the Brock Turner case and a little bit about Gabrielle Union coming up on the broadcast. Hey, it's Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. And while the Bradcast and Bradblog.com fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation, we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by Bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one-time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions that those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds to stop by bradblog.com donate right now. And thanks. It's the Bradcast. If you're not familiar with me, Angie Cairo, I am the nicest person on the planet because I'm letting Brad and Desi enjoy a couple days off. We're going to go back now to considering Brock Turner's release from jail. This week, Gabrielle Union went public with her own terrible and terribly personal story. She was raped. That is no small thing for any woman, let alone one of the stars of Birth of a Nation, the director and star of which has an ugly sexual assault story in his past. It's no small thing to go public with this. But she was knocked over to find out the film she signed on with, as she said, to give voice to women who've been the victim of violence was in fact created by a man accused of rape. So I'm commending Gabrielle Union not only for putting her life and soul on the table with that, 
but because she used the phrase out loud, rape culture. There are still people who deny that that is the water we swim in, who say that rape culture is a feminazi excuse for women who tease and then, quote, cry rape. On that topic, let's go back to Umana Gandhi and Sajid Khan because they tackled what rape culture is in our conversation about Brock Turner. Please be aware, we are going to talk explicitly about sexual assault in here. We are talking about what rape culture is and whether it truly exists. And this is worth going into in detail. I am a woman, says our audience member, who went through the same thing as Emily Doe. When I attended a party, I drank too much. Perhaps some pills were put in my drink. I lost control of my body. These men took me out of the building and raped me. I said no many times. He didn't care. I kept it quiet. It still hurts. I know that keeping it quiet was best. I wish Emily's rape would have been validated and Turner would have been sentenced and presumably sentenced properly. He did get sentenced. That opens up the question of rape culture, what it is, and whether it's provably extant, Imani. I know there are a lot of people um, who like to think that rape culture is a myth and that it's just a bunch of hysterical women being hysterical. And if women would just keep their legs closed and not drink and not go outside and not talk to anyone, then rape wouldn't be a problem. And there's also this overwhelming feeling that rape is only when a guy grabs you off the street and drags you into the bushes. But most rapes are acquaintance rapes. They're rapes by people that you know. It it becomes difficult for women who are friends with someone who rapes them to try and figure out how to negotiate that. And it also becomes difficult for, it shouldn't be difficult, but for some reason it seems to be difficult for parents to teach their children, their boys, and some women, but, you know, most rape is, is, is perpetrated by men, what consent means, what bodily autonomy means, what it means to touch someone when that's not wanted. Rape culture is a real thing. There's a reason why most rapes go unreported. It's because rape victims are treated horribly by the media, by the system. Um, They are dragged through the mud. Their lives are opened up for examination. Everything from how much they were drinking to how many people they'd slept with before to whether or not they initially agreed to the sexual encounter and and it then turned into rape, whether it's even possible to rape a drunk person. I mean, these are questions that feminists and social justice activists have been reckoning with and trying to come up ways to explain to people, you can't touch people without asking them. You can't touch people without their consent. You certainly cannot penetrate someone without their consent. Even if they're drunk, even if you're both drunk, you can't have sex with drunk people and think that that's okay. Um, It breaks my heart to know that there are women out there who have been raped, whomever whomever wrote that question. Um, That breaks my heart because... The fact that she felt it necessary to say it was best for me to not report it. There, there are a lot of people who seem to think that rape victims are required to report their rapists, because if they don't, then what if that person goes out and rapes somebody else? Well, a rape victim needs to care for herself first. They need to be concerned about their own trauma, their own mental state. And yes, it would be wonderful if every rape victim felt like they could come forward and try to stop it from happening to someone else. But then again, that person is opening themselves up to a lot of harsh treatment. And why would you want to do that? You've already gone through one of the worst things you'll ever go through in your entire life. The last thing you want to do is to have that triggered again and again and again as you go through a legal process that is ultimately not going to treat you fairly. Well, what about Saj's point that the accused has the right to confront and ask all kinds of questions of 
of the purported victim. Absolutely. I agree. They have the right to ask certain questions. And I can't remember the case, and I'm sure that you will remember, but, you know, it used to be that you could ask questions about pri- previous sexual encounters. And yeah, no now the can. law is actually very regimented in yeah. terms of what you can and can't ask about, especially in terms of prior sexual behaviors or experiences, things like that. It's, it's very... Uh, limited. There have been protections that have been imposed to limit that type of muckraking, essentially. Right. And I think that just, I think rape culture comes into play even in the types of questions that victims are asked on the stand. It seems to me the way that victims are treated or alleged victims are treated on the stand is also very much a product of rape culture. I remember there was a YouTube video that was circulating several years ago of like, it was like a four-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. And the four-year-old boy just really wanted to hug the four-year-old girl. And he kept hugging her and the four-year-old girl just kept pushing him away. And he kept hugging her and she kept pushing him away. And people were like, oh, that's so cute. You know, this four-year-old, they just want to hug. That's not cute. You know, that's teaching from a young age that it's okay for a four-year-old boy to continue to persist to want to hug a girl, even though she doesn't want it. And so it's sort of rejiggering one's thinking about something as simple as a hug between two preschoolers that can have severe consequences for how that child grows up and how that girl grows up, knowing that, you know, I can tell this young kid that I don't want to hug him and it doesn't matter because he's going to hug me anyway because he's a boy and he feels entitled. I want to go into, and this is based on a couple audience questions, I want to go into the use of the word rape in this case. The charge of rape against Brock Turner was thrown out. He was charged and convicted of attempt to rape. Rape, according to the FBI, is different than the rape, according to California. The victim was penetrated. Uh, There were pine needles and dirt in her mouth and in her vagina. The FBI says that rape is penetration. It doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, with a sex organ. It can be just about anything. Then there's the idea of what the vernacular is. I mean, nobody walking down the street who talks about the word rape says, excuse me, let me go look up the FBI definition of that. So can we talk about the use of the word rape in this case and whether it's appropriate, or whether we're somehow obliged to follow a legal definition? And if so, how do we do that? So I, did- I mean, as an attorney, there are, like you mentioned, there are legal definitions and there are nuances in the statute that differentiate different types of acts. But as a person, even though I'm an, an attorney and as a public defender, I don't think it's wrong to label this as a, a rape case. So, I mean, I think it's more accurate to say sexual assault. Um, but why? Well... Well, I guess I'm going back to my public defenderness and saying that he, that's what he was convicted of. He was convicted of assault with intent to commit rape and digital penetration, meaning with his with his fingers of uh, Emily Doe. In a technical sense, it wasn't your classic rape, you know, with with his um, with his penis, uh, for lack of a better term. And so, <laughs> is there a better term? I don't know if there's a better term. Um, but I mean, in the aggregate, I don't think it really matters. I think. It's an egregious act. It's a sexual assault. It's a rape. Uh, I don't know if the technicalities really matter as we discuss it in terms of the impact on the victim, in terms of the empathy we, we should be feeling for her. I don't think that the technicalities really matter for, for purposes of the larger scale discussion that we're, we're engaging in. I mean, my question would be, why were those rape charges dropped? Because it sounds to me like what he did is he raped her. Well, that's what goes back to the technical definition is that he didn't actually penetrate her with his penis. And so that's why those charges were dropped. I I don't think that they were able to prove those charges at a early stage and they didn't decide to pursue them. Okay. A lot of questions from the audience on the role of alcohol here. There was an argument between the judge and the prosecutor as to how much leeway that gives someone. But also there's ongoing dispute over how much responsibility lies with a person who knows that drinking makes you vulnerable 
to make the choice to go out and drink, if you look at that, you're going to hear, well, you're blaming the victim. And if you don't look at that, you're saying, if you're drunk, the reality is you are going to be more vulnerable. Not that it makes it your fault, but that you need to be aware that that's a reality. And maybe we need to be teaching our girls, don't lower your defenses that far. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky question. Um, it's a tricky subject. I don't like conversations about what it is girls should or shouldn't be doing when it comes to drinking or clothing or being out late at night. But at the same time, we live in the world that we live in. And so it's obviously a concern. I don't have children. If I did have children, I would certainly teach them. You know, you got to keep your defenses up. You've got to, even when I walk through parking lots late at night, I'm always aware of my oh, surroundings. I mean, that's just, I'm, I read a lot of Stephen King as a child. I'm always afraid that <laughs> someone's going to try and serial kill me in a parking lot. But, you know, I think it would be irresponsible to not teach your children, all children, to be aware of their surroundings. But at the same time, there's not enough focus on teaching boys not to rape. And there's not enough focus on teaching boys what rape is. A lot of times we seem to think of rape, as I said, as this forcible thing. You're dragging someone out of a, off the street into the bushes. And I'm sure they're, you know, 95% of guys aren't those kinds of rapists. But rape is also when a girl says no and you continue. That's rape. Non-consensual touching is when you touch someone and they say, don't touch me. And so I think we need to really focus on teaching those sorts of lessons to boys while at the same time making sure that we are raising our girls in a manner that makes them aware of their surroundings and makes them aware that that guy that you're friends with or that guy you're studying with is like every guy is a potential rapist. I mean, that's what that's like the fact. And it's a sad fact. But I mean, maybe, maybe I'm being hysterical or whatnot, but that's just <laughs> that's just sort of how I view the world. Um, just to give that some context, by the way, yeah. uh, Professor Michelle Dauber is one of the primary people trying to get a new vote on whether Aaron Persky should keep his judgeship. Mm -hmm. And I've already seen her online being called hysterical. Right. And, you know, hysterical is a very gendered term. Women, when women are not rational, we're crazy, we're hysterical. But it's not it's not hysteria when you, you know, work with victims and you see what they're put through and you do surveys and you talk to men who have no idea that rape is as prevalent as it is. I remember I was at a party, like just a very close, intimate party with a couple of guys. And we started talking about this. And when asked who's been sexually assaulted, almost everyone in the room raised their hand. And the guys were shocked. They couldn't believe it. And then they started talking. And then this particular group of women wasn't shy about sharing their experiences. And 95% of them were acquaintance rape. It wasn't the dragging off the street into the bushes sort of deal. Mm -hmm. And so to get back to the question about alcohol, I have a real hard time when people blame their bad behavior on alcohol. I've been drunk plenty of times. I've never raped anyone. I've never called anyone a racist slur. I have this thing where when I hang out with certain white folks, they start to get a little bit too comfortable. And then when they get drunk, they start to be a little bit too racist. And it's kind of like there's something in you that's already that way if that comes out of you when you're drunk. Blaming alcohol or lessening a sentence because, well, he was uninhibited because of alcohol. I think that that's, quite frankly, bullshit, if I may say that on the air. Kim, we have a beat button. We yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been trying really hard. <laughs> Sajin, how about you on this? Yeah, I mean, I agree that about alcohol and not allowing it to be used as an excuse for sexual assault or rape. I mean, I, this idea that if someone drank too much, that somehow that... Uh, was their fault that they ended up being the victim of a particular crime. Um, but in terms from a legal perspective, alcohol, drugs, intoxicants, they do play a role in terms of 
uh, defenses to particular crimes. Um, if someone is so intoxicated that they couldn't achieve the required intent for a particular crime, that's a defense. It's a defense that's built into the law. And in this case, uh, or in cases of sexual assault, if someone is so drunk that they couldn't consent, the view is from the offender's perspective. Did they subjectively know that the other person that they were involved with was so drunk that they couldn't consent? So it was actually from the view of Brock Turner. Looking through his eyes, should he have known or did he know that Emily Doe was so drunk that she wasn't capable of consenting? And so... Well, so if, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to go to the transcript. The judge said, I take him at his word subjectively. It's his version of events. The jury obviously found it not to be the sequence of events. There's less moral culpability attached to the defendant who is legally intoxicated. The prosecutor said, I don't agree with the court's description. This case is less serious because there was alcohol involved. Is there a legal standard on that? There is. So when you get that probation report that you might be reading from or the transcripts that you might be reading from, uh, there are statutory boxes, aggravators, mitigators. And one of the potential mitigators is whether the person was under the influence of a alcohol or a controlled substance. I mean, it's kind of counterintuitive, um, but it is something that a, a court could take into account. And Judge Persky did take into account in this particular set of circumstances. So it's something that he was, it wasn't something that he was pulling from thin air. It was, it's actually in our guidelines and in the guidelines that the judge has in front of him to um, grapple with as he imposes his sentence. And But also what troubles me about this particular case, like it's not a case where you have two drunk people who stumble into a dorm room late at night and then it's just unclear as to what was said. I don't know a lot of women that want to have sex behind a dumpster. You know what I mean? And so that in and of itself just speaks of just sort of the more heinousness of this particular crime. And maybe that's, you know, not necessarily a legal standard, but there we are. But the judge is beholden the legal standards. Right. And I just... I... I just can't, this, less moral culpability because you're drunk. I mean, how does that even operate, really? Well, it, it is different. I mean, it, it's different in the sense of, if you think of the uh, more predatory behavior, so the sober person that's waiting outside that party, waiting for the drunk woman to stumble out okay. to then take advantage of her. You know, you think of that context. You, we, I, I would imagine that's a much more heinous set of circumstances because that person is essentially having more forethought, more malice in their mind, and they are essentially planning to engage in this type of behavior. And they're seeking out someone to victimize. Whereas you have someone like Brock Turner, uh, who is drinking himself, it, it doesn't rise to the level for me and for the law as the rise level of malice or kind of forethought or intentionality that other person that I just described might have. Mm -hmm. so well, let's I, go into the case of Raul Ramirez. And Raul Ramirez is older than Brock Turner. Yeah. There was a rape case where there was a negotiated sentence between the prosecutor and the defender. They took this case to Judge Aaron Persky, and he approved the verdict. Now, this gentleman is going to jail for—gentleman, this person— is going to prison for three years, right. state prison. And I'm taking into mind all of those checkboxes that you mentioned. Yeah. And it looks like a conflict here because this is a man who admitted what he did, apologized immediately after, took full responsibility. A completely different scenario, no intoxication. The victim's statement wasn't you know, nearly the caliber of what we heard. And somehow the judge felt comfortable agreeing to a three-year sentence. One of the big distinctions here is that that was a negotiated agreement right. between two different parties, and he was, you know, essentially signing off on it. 
But he's not a rubber stamp. I mean, it's his job to actually look at that and say, does this resonate with justice? So either of you, tackle that one. Yeah, so there's lots of nuts and bolts involved with that uh, that case and that I want to shine some lights on, uh, shine, shine a light on. Um, so the judge only has certain abilities um, within the law to control outcomes of particular cases. And what they can't control is the charge. So the prosecutor, the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office, they control what charges that they uh, prosecute. And so in the case of Mr. Ramirez, he was charged with a forcible digital penetration of a victim that has a mandatory minimum of three years prison, which is different than what Brock Turner was charged with and ultimately convicted of. And so, so in the sense that the judge had any control over Raul Ramirez's ultimate sentence, he couldn't do anything about the charge. He couldn't say to the DA, hey, you charged this wrong. Let's, bring, you know, let's uh, impose a different charge that has a different set of consequences. So the judge can only deal with what's in front of him. Now, in terms of, uh, so that's, that's point number one, is that this was a different charge. Um, the gentleman, Mr. Ramirez, was charged, we actually just described it, he was charged, he wasn't intoxicated, the victim wasn't intoxicated, he was charged with a forcible digital penetration of a victim. And that carries a three-year minimum that the judge cannot go below. He doesn't, he, the law does not afford him any ability to go below that, even if he wanted to. Brock Turner hit so many buttons with so many people. I first reacted to this case, I thought, here we have another guy, another white guy, at a moneyed and legendary institution who appears to have gotten off with, again, the victim being left without what appears to be justice. And that opens up the whole question of whether it's appropriate to put the, all that on him. I saw a listing online the other day of all of the cases of police officers who either injured or killed black Americans, and none of them are getting sentenced. But would it be fair to carry all of those cases into the court and say, well, this is the case where we're going to get somebody? And that deprives that defendant of his or her justice. So let's dive into that one. Yeah, so my, my thought is that there have been countless cases of athletes that benefit from their standing as athletes at universities or professionally uh, when accused of sexual assault, essentially get a slap on the wrist or even get an apology. Uh, Kobe Bryant, Ben Roethlisberger, Jameis Winston. I mean, there's just countless numbers of them. To me, this prosecution, this arrest of Rock Turner, this prosecution of him, the fact that he ultimately was convicted of three felonies, was removed from Stanford, is now unable to pursue his swimming dreams. To me, that is emblematic of a stand against rape culture. It's actually the, someone who didn't get a slap on the wrist, someone who was prosecuted to the full extent of the law. In the, in the aggregate, he didn't benefit from the privilege that so many other athletes tend to benefit from. The other thing I wanted to mention to you is this idea of whether or not Miss Doe got justice. Um, I have a real deep concern about our intertwining justice with prison. This idea that prison time, uh, some arbitrary term of prison service equals justice. Um, and I don't think that is what we should aspire for, that incarceration equals justice. Sure, incarceration is appropriate in many cases, but it doesn't automatically mean it's the right thing in every case. Just because Brock Turner got a six-month sentence doesn't mean that this victim uh, wasn't served justice. And I don't know how two years of prison, three years of prison would have made her any more whole. I guess in my view, you just have to compare it to what, you know, the hypothetical black or brown defendant would have gotten in his stead. 
And I think that it's naive to think that the hypothetical brown or black defendant would have had a judge so concerned about his swimming dreams and how much his, you know, he liked to barbecue with his family. And I mean, I just I can't. In a, in a certain respect, I think you're right. It was a case of, okay, finally a white guy got what's coming to him, to not to sound too retrib- retributive. Is that a word? Um, <laughs> but, you know, on the other hand, given what the prosecution asked for and given what he was sentenced to, I think there's a real gap there in between what he should have had coming and what he has had coming. That's Imani Gandhi of This Week in Blackness Prime and Sajid Khan of the Santa Clara County Public Defender's Office. I'm Angie Cuero. We'll have more of this conversation about the Brock Turner case and a little bit about Gabrielle Union coming up on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero. For a candidate, there's no escaping words. There's getting away with words, but that's a different thing. There's no escaping them. If it comes out of their mouths, it is recorded, it's transcribed, it's posted, it's tweeted, it's analyzed. It is everywhere. Jeff Nunberg makes his living looking into the context and history of language. I asked him to join me to deconstruct the rhetoric of election 2016, and so he sat down with me in front of a live audience. I was trying to not be the liberal media, which is impossible. I'm the liberal media. But I was trying to be very even-handed and get information and material to talk to you about, about the rhetoric of both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And there is a vast imbalance in Mm -hmm. what's out there. Does that indicate that we already know Trump's speech and his rhetoric is radical? Does that mean that Hillary is vanilla, boring, nothing worth talking about? Well, no, I don't mean I don't think she's vanilla, boring, nothing worth talking about. But she is in the line of a certain tradition. I mean, she has her own quirks and and peculiarities, but she's in a line of a certain tradition of, let me say, center left rhetoric in the history of American politics. There's nothing particularly unusual about the language she uses. Uh, where Trump is sui generis. In a certain sense, it's, it's, it, he's uninteresting if you're for somebody who's interested in political language because it's this one-off that, that's going to disappear, one assumes, uh, one, one hopes. Uh, and, and, uh, and really what he's doing linguistically is not going to establish a precedent, you assume, even if he were to win, not going to establish a precedent for other, other politicians. You were saying before we started the show that this is linguistically one of the most boring campaigns. Am well, I quoting you I don't, I don't think, no, not linguistically, but from the standpoint of political language, and this may seem a contrary thing to say, it's probably the least interesting and revealing campaign we've had in modern times. By that, I mean that there's no ideology. I mean, language usually does the work of establishing certain ideological bases and, and positions. There's no ideology out there. I mean, we, we're not hearing about it. So you don't hear from the right, you don't hear things like big government or the nanny state or religious liberty, which was an item for Ted Cruz. And so they're, they're not out there. 
and from the center left, whatever you want to call it, uh, you're, you people really aren't talking much about inequality and the other issues that figured much more centrally, obviously, in the discussions between between Clinton and Sanders. Right now, we're we're interested in one thing mostly. It's Donald Trump and and the remarkable things he's been able to do with language. And because Trump is such an exceptional, let me say, uh, case, uh, we're really not much interested in, 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 in ideology. It drives, it not, drives not just the, the left crazy, but the traditional conservatives are driven crazy by that. You know, the, 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 the people who want to make the case for certain conservative positions, they're not hearing that either. So from that standpoint, the language that I had written about, George Lakoff has written about, and so on, that, that does the work of ideological indoctrination or making the case or persuasion, that's really not foregrounded, let me mm -hmm. say, in, in, this, in this campaign. We keep hearing how exceptional Trump is. Nobody's ever seen a, a candidate like this. Is he really unique in the spectrum of presidents and elections that you've looked at? In many ways, he is, certainly. I mean, he, he is in a certain, people call him a populist. He's certainly drawing on the kinds of resentments that populists, American populists, have traditionally drawn on. And in that sense, he's in a, he's in a line that goes back. People have mentioned Pat Buchanan and so on. But what he's doing is, is in a certain sense, unique. And, but partly in the, the way he makes his case, partly in the fact that he's the least plausible populist figure that we've, we've, we've ever had. <laughs> And partly because I think really the, the Trumpians or the Trumpers or whatever you want to call them are, are a kind of a different constituency from, from the traditional populist constituency. Mm -hmm. Let's go into some of the, the labels that we hear. They seem to have moved around. Liberals became progressives at some point. Now they're back to being liberals. So let's, can we deconstruct some of those? Who's yeah, liberal, liberal progressive, boy. Um, I've, I've often thought that the only difference between liberals and progressives is that the progressives believe there is one. <laughs> it's very hard if you give people a list of issues and say, what's your position on X and Y and Z? But there's a difference in style. Certainly, there's a difference in the attitude toward mainstream politics. I think it's more mechanical or, or operational than, than it is actually ideological. I don't, I don't think there's that much difference between liberals and progressives in, in terms of the, their, their issue positions. But it's been, you know, this, this has been going back and forth for a long time, this debate. Um, Basically, the, the best predictor of whether somebody calls himself a liberal or progressive is to look at a zip code. <laughs> if, you're, if you're in Berkeley, you're a progressive, right? If, if you're in uh, Terre Haute, you're a, you're a liberal, yeah. Um, looking at the phrases that just started cropping up in this election, I'm wondering how long it takes them to kind of percolate down to the vernacular. Those of us who, you know, we eat politics for breakfast and we've heard of alt-left and alt-right. And I think a lot of people walking into the voting booth haven't heard that. And I just wonder about the progress of language from the people who are in the bubble and the people who are out of the bubble. I don't know if alt-right will, will have that. That cachet. That, well, that cachet. I mean, the alt-right really refers to these kind of extreme right-wingers and, and nationalists and so on and so forth. I'm talking to linguist Jeff Nunberg. Let's talk about class and race and gender. There is a flood of new literature and new conversation about lower-class white Americans. Uh, white trash is coming back into the dialogue. Redneck mm. is back in the dialogue. Mm. Hillbilly is a big one right now with J.D. Mm. Vance's book right. coming out. And it's a strange mingling of using slurs to try to treat people with respect, saying, yeah, this is a hillbilly, and here's what a hillbilly really is. Yeah, are you sitting comfortably? I have, I have, a, I have a line I'm on ready. these words. Um, back in uh, 1989, C. Van Woodward, the great historian of the American South, made the observation that redneck is the only slur 
for a group that you can still use in polite company in American life. People said the same thing about white trash. Uh, John Waters said the same thing about white, white trash. So these words are out there, and they're out there now in a very interesting way. I think the, and you see them, I mean, the interesting thing, you go to the French press, you know, they're talking about les white trash, you know, and the, the Germans, the, the, the white trash, and you know, the, 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 generally that's been the narrative about the Trump supporters. Now, whether that is in fact the accurate picture of the people who are supporting Trump, that is to say these economically marginalized people who have been, uh, whose jobs have been taken away by outsourcing or Mexicans uh, taking their, their work or not. I mean, the, the evidence seems to suggest that's not true. Those people are not particularly well represented among Trump supporters. And rather, there's a big Gallup survey that people have been talking about. Rather, they're people a little better off who may live in areas, they live in areas that are very far from Mexicans. And uh, actually, the biggest predictor of who, who's a Trump supporter is, is life expectancy and obesity. Uh, uh, <laughs> Wait, is that for real? Out, are you kidding? No, no, that's the Gallup, that's the Gallup survey, <laughs> obesity. Uh, uh, if you look at the rate of obesity in counties and look at the Trump vote, they, they correlate very closely. Um, <laughs> Which, which makes sense in a certain sense. These are older people. They're people who um, have a certain status, but, but see it being diminished, who see, I don't want to use the phrase white privilege, but who see the, 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 the centrality of whites in American society being diminished. It's less an economic concern than, uh, because their jobs are not actually being, if you're in construction, you're not worried about the Chinese. You know, they can't outsource that. And, and those are the people who, who are really at the core of Trump's support. Nonetheless, the white trash redneck business is, to my mind, very important, precisely because of those words, though they originated as the names of these poor whites in the hollers of Kentucky and the Erskine Caldwell uh, of Tobacco Road in Georgia, in uh, the rednecks in, in, in Texas and so on, are now used in a very general way. Since the 70s, people have used redneck just to mean somebody who, uh, if you identify as a redneck, it just means you, you feel like you're a real person, you're authentic, you like to hunt and fish, you're not interested in those uh, snooty uh, uh, East Coast elites. And it becomes a kind of lifestyle declaration, so much so that in an interview, I think 2012, Donald Trump Jr. says, well, you know, I like bow hunting and, and fishing. He says, I guess I'm kind of a closet redneck. I mean, well, if, if Donald Trump Jr. is a redneck, this is not a class, <laughs> <laughs> a class notion anymore. And I think if you want to know who's, who's supporting Trump, it's not the actual rednecks, the actual white trash, as they're, as they're called, but the people who make that kind of cultural identification. One, one more anecdote, Trump... In 2007 episode of the, um, the Apprentice, one of the candidates said, "Well, I'm, I'm just white trash. I go to, uh, I only go to restaurants that have fried appetizers." And and <laughs> the other people laughed. Trump says, "You're fired. I don't want anybody working for me who thinks he's red trash. Or he's, he's white trash." And it struck me that Trump kind of didn't get that maneuver, but also that the fact is that Trump actually wants the people to vote for him who think they're white trash, or who at least proudly proclaim that they're white trash and rednecks and so on. And so I think that's the best way of getting at this, in a certain way, at this population that everybody's trying to characterize. You, every journalist is going off into renting a truck and going off into the Western Pennsylvania or Mississippi or so to interview Trump supporters. To what, what do these people really want? And so on and so on. And I think that's one way to think of them. You said you wanted to stay away from the phrase white privilege. Why is that? 
Well, because in this case, I mean, white privilege has a certain... Um, the, these people don't feel themselves privileged. They don't see the advantages of white privilege. Now, it's true that when they're stopped by a policeman, they're white. It's true that when you go to a bank for a loan, you're white, right? White privilege is not something you can disown. But I think these people feel, uh, to a large extent, they're not privileged. They've watched opportunities fade. Then now we're talking about the, the people in the hollers that J.D. Vance talks about. Um, they're, they're in places where there is no economic opportunity, where there are very high levels of out-of-wedlock births, drug addiction, violence, uh, and so on, high unemployment rates. They don't feel privileged. So to use that word is to, is to, is to suggest that they... Their, their feeling of being deprived of what should rightfully be theirs is illegitimate, which I think is probably not the way you want to think about it. Question from the audience. Can you comment on how language might be manipulated during discussions on terrorism, Islam, Islamic State, religion, bigotry? Well, there's nothing but <laughs> manipulation. <laughs> um, all of these words, terror uh, and terrorism, becomes this kind of global force, this global entity um, that, that floats somehow above all of its individual instantiations. The way terrorist itself is used, the word itself is used, you basically have to be Muslim to be a terrorist. You know, if you, the young man Dylan, whatever his name was in South Carolina, was not a terrorist. Mm-hmm. But because he killed, black, because he, he was white and he killed people for racial, racist motives... But uh, the, the fellow who, um, who killed all those people in Orlando was a terrorist because he was Islamic and because he was Muslim and killed those people for other motives. So the, these words are all charged with a whole set of cultural assumptions about who is a terrorism, what terrorism is, and so on. And the war on terror then becomes, you know, by definition, a war on them. On, mm-hmm. on, Trump likes to call uh, uh, Muslim extremists or uh, radical Muslim extremists. Is that the phrase? Yeah. You can see the media struggling with this. There was the whole battle with Abu Ghraib about calling something torture. And administration would not call it torture, would not. And then you saw the media outlets, some adopted it immediately, some of them would go into why it's not being called torture. But No, it, what was fascinating to me is none of the, if you looked at the European press in that period, nobody had any trouble calling that torture. The, the Independent, I think, is Murdoch's paper. One of Murdoch's papers, in, I can't remember which, which of Murdoch's papers in, in, in the UK was calling it torture, right? Nobody, the right, the left, the center, this was not problematic. Only in the US was it problematic. Even NPR had, had a wonderful exchange with the, a, a heated exchange of views, let me put it that way, with the NPR ombudsperson about the refusal of NPR to use torture. And they said, well, it was... Politically, we want to be objective and, 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 and so on. And I said, well, would you, if the Iranians did it to Americans, would you call it torture? We said, well, we'd have to think about that and so on. But, <laughs> but uh, the horror of the American media at being accused of being un- not objective, uh, the, the requirement that if, if one side uses a certain word one way and another side uses it the other way, you can't pick sides. You have to, you have to somehow find a way down the middle or avoid it or something. Um, that's characteristic of the American media and, and I think stands in for the general problem of media coverage of politics today. I promised earlier we'd get into gender and we've not gotten back to right. that yet. And of course, when a woman has gotten this far in a presidential election, that in and of itself is unique. That hasn't happened mm-hmm. before. Right. So gender would be part of the discussion either subliminally or deliberately. But Trump adds an interesting wrinkle to that in that 
his history of addressing people, you know, with uh, Megan Kelly, you know, she's mm-hmm. bleeding out of her ears or her wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of the language that comes from his supporters, you know, we're hearing gender treated a lot more caustically than we might have without him on the trail. Is that is that? Your I, I think this is part of the, the 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 phenomenon we were talking about earlier, where people are not that you know the gloves are off, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. and people are saying things that. Um, that they would have been uh, reluctant to say, or to say in public anyway, uh, uh, 10 years ago about gender. And, and a lot of that's directed at Hillary Clinton. Now, to whose advantage is that? Probably Clinton's. I mean, every time somebody uh, calls Clinton a bitch or something on the, on the right, that's another woman who's not going to vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is Trump unique in the way that he kind of gives people permission to say these things, but then won't claim them. We talked about the term dog whistle mm-hmm. um, it, and the candidate signaling to people a certain thing, not making it explicit. But if they act or expand on the dog whistle, it, it's not his fault. Is he unique that way or is that standard political stuff? Well, I think people have dog whistled. I've always dog whistled. You say, as uh, Newt Gingrich did, that uh, Obama is the, um, the food stamp president. And somebody accuses you of racism and you say, oh, no, I'm not racist. Why do you think that's racist? You're the one with race on the brain and so on. If uh, other people go on to say, you know, food stamps and these these blacks in the inner cities and so on and so forth. If, if you're Newt Gingrich, you would disown them or you wouldn't. Um, and certainly that's what when uh, Paul Ryan was charged with dog whistling when he talked about the pathological cultures of the inner city um, in, in the same way. So in any event, I think that Trump is less... Trump feels less of a need to to disown those statements than than earlier statements that yes than, than earlier politicians did. Thank you, Jeff Nunberg, for your analysis of the language of the Clinton and Trump campaigns. Thanks too to Brad Friedman for letting me take the chair today. I will be with you again on the other side of the holiday weekend. Take a moment during these three days to appreciate the labor movement, please. Maybe teach a kid or two why we have overtime protections, why we have safer workspaces. And even though we have to fight every damn day for it, why we have some progress toward a living wage for all. Happy Labor Day. I'm Angie Cuero. 